Hi there, this is Tim Bratton, and this is not an episode of We Treaty People. Instead, this week we wanted to share with you the live recording of our Christmas Presents event, which took place on December 10th, 2022. Our Christmas Presents event is a unique mashup of stories and songs that explores the nativity with a messy but joyful hope. This year's event featured performances by Louise and Shane Bueller of Sunday Morning Riot, Daryl Dawslaw, Wyndham Thiessen, and Stephen Waldschmidt, as well as two friends who we met while we recorded We Treaty People, Andrea Folster and Louise Half. We hope you enjoy this special recording, made especially for the 2022 holiday season. Welcome, everybody. This is great. We're like in a room together for some stories and some music. It's like a real theater gig. This is our eighth time doing Christmas presents here in Saskatoon. Every year, one year just online, but you know, last year we did this hybrid video and, and live performance. This time, we're, you guys are the live radio audience tonight. Right. So we're recording this and we're going to release it as an online radio show. So, you know, it's just like. Stuart McLean or something. Yeah. Um, Who's Stuart McLean? You or me? I think you're Stuart McLean because you're yeah, reading no the, the longer piece. All right, fair enough. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I, my name is Stephen Walshman. I'm the artistic director of Burnt Thicket Theatre. And I am Tim Bratton. I'm the artistic associate of Burnt Thicket Theatre. And I'm and supposed to say some more things. I don't know. I, I think I stole your thunder because I, I, I talked about the radio. You did. Part. We are going to record this is what yeah. Steve is saying. Yeah. And it will be released later, so don't say anything obscene towards us on the stage. Please. That's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And uh, I, I also want to say that we are gathering tonight and recording tonight on Treaty 6 territory and the homeland of the Métis. I don't know about you, I have been really grateful for the sunrises this morning as we get closer to solstice and the, the longest, longest night of the year. This morning there was hoarfrost, which I haven't seen for a while, and I really loved it. I want to say we are treaty people, all of us, and as a company, we commit to work to honor the spirit of the treaties, to collaborate respectfully with descendants of the original caretakers of these lands, and to participate in positive systemic change. We are grateful for the opportunity and the gift it is to live here and to create theater here on this beautiful land we share. And we'd like to encourage all of us to continue our learning journeys, each of us, uh, toward truth, toward reconciliation, and toward growing as peacemakers in our neighborhoods. Yeah. I also just want to take this chance to thank some of our corporate sponsors for their support, especially our season sponsors this year, Shercom Industries and SK Arts, as well as the Canada Council for the Arts. And we special thanks also to Riversdale Neighbors and to Stobie Photo. We also want to thank our donors and patrons like you. You are supporting the work of Burnt Thicket tonight by being here. Whether or not you've made a donation, admissions and donations are going to support our new play development. And uh, if you want to donate to help us create more stories that kindle hopeful change in people's lives, you can go to burntthicket.com and make a donation. On the back of your playbill, or on the website later, you can check out our upcoming season of plays. We're so excited. We've got three shows coming up in 2023. Evergreen. It's a brand new play by Chris Marushi about isolation and the risk of hope. It's coming in February. 
And we have New Blood, a story of reconciliation. This is an epic, true story that we are presenting in partnership with Persephone Theater in March. And then My Little Plastic Jesus, which will bring Tim to living rooms again in June. So we hope you join us. Ticket sales are going to be coming online probably in the next week on our website. Now please, enjoy Christmas presents. We start the evening with the beginning of the story of the vexation of Barney Hatch by B.J. Shute, told this evening in four parts. And we're going to start right now with part one of the vexation of Barney Hatch. The big bell clanged in the church tower and all the pigeons gossiping on the roof flew up in a violent state of nurse, as if the day of judgment had come upon them. This created a fine rumpus of snow gray wings in the snow gray sky over Barney Hatch, but it confirmed him in a private theory that pigeons were not quite right in the head. But the church has been around for more than a century, and the bell gave its great shout every hour, which meant that 24 times a day for over a hundred years, the pigeons, or their ancestors, had been blowing their tops. Now, Barney was not mathematically an able man, but even he could see that the thing had got out of hand. A panhandler himself, Barney had a certain professional sympathy for pigeons. Birds with an eye to the main chance and an alert capacity for spotting likely crumb droppers. He stared down at them now, bobbing and clucking around his shoes and rubbing his nose thoughtfully with the back of his hand. His nose was cold and he rubbed it some more, turning it from a melancholy blue to a, quite a cheerful red. But his mind was on neither the pigeons nor his nose. Barney Hatch had a project, and the project required cash. Not a large fortune, but a sum of the size affectionately known as tidy. This project was going to cost $3.49, and since he had only 47 cents in his pocket, he still needed three bills and two pennies. The trouble was the time was running short, tomorrow being Christmas Day, and Christmas Day being the cause of the whole thing. Christmas was all over the city, wreaths and doorways, tinsel and red ribbon, and holly berries bursting out in odd corners. A piney, citrony, maddening jumble of sights and smells, tugging and nudging like a persistent cat at a garbage can. It had roused in Barney a sudden determination to do some celebrating himself for once, and to join in the general exuberance of warmth and good cheer. The very notion of a celebration, it automatically pointed his toes toward the nearest liquor store, and he was engaged in a conscientious survey of the stock of whiskey in the glittering window, with an eye toward economy, when the gold seal on a front row bottle winked at him. It was a fat bottle, nicely shaped to accommodate the hand, and in addition to the gold seal, it had a fancy label and a scarlet ribbon in a Christmas bow around its neck. It was plainly a bottle designed for good cheer, and judging by the price, its contents had been knowingly distilled. On the other hand, its price was outrageous. Barney's struggle with his good sense was brisk but brief. After all, a Christmas treat was a Christmas treat, and what good was a celebration unless it was done right? He thought about the glow there would be in a bottle of good whiskey like this one, and how the glow would last and spread and get deeper and wider. Nothing in the world would give you a glow like that one you could count on. And a whole bottle to himself would very probably produce the finest glow in the history of man. All he had to do was raise the money. Contemplating the financial aspects now, among the cooing, huffing pigeons, Barney did comforting sums in his head. After all, it, it was Christmas, 
a time when any competent panhandler can count on a certain amount of soft-headedness among his clientele. Estimating, he decided that six suckers at 50 cents each would do just nicely. He raised his eyes from the improvident birds and took a good look around. A man went by, briefcase in hand, a rolled-up newspaper under one arm. Oh, a literate gent, well-heeled. Barney got his feet moving fast and performed a sort of flanking movement. Barney smiled, an ingratiating, a calculating smile. He said, Sir, like a cooing dove, imagining for a moment that the man would press a five-dollar bill into his hand, touched by the general lunacy of Christmas. The man stepped neatly around Barney and said, Ah, left my wallet at home, and departed. Barney said, Yeah, to the tails of the gentleman's overcoat, and left his wallet at home. <laughs> He'd be as apt to set sail without his trousers as without his money. Expressing dissatisfaction in a low mutter, Barney left the pigeons and the church bell and tried another street. A lady in a squirrel necklace gave him a dime and a lecture, leaving him with two ninety-two to go and a bad taste in his mouth. He walked through a transported grove of pine trees on a street corner, little fat trees and tall lean trees all waiting for the tinsel and the star and the fancy trimmings that were... Nice enough when you had four walls to wrap around them. Knick-knacks, said Barney scornfully. Jingle-jangles. And he thought of the knick-knack and jingle-jangle of a gold seal on a whiskey bottle. He thought of waking up on Christmas morning and taking his first drink, savoring it in a gentleman-like manner, not gulping. The whole bottle to go through, and the whole day to go through it. He thought of how he would admire the label and the seal and the Christmas ribbon before he pulled the cork and had himself the first Christmas drink spreading warm and bright. He walked on, and the gold seal bottle kept just one step ahead of him, out of reach, an airborne promise. He stopped outside a department store, its windows shimmering and quivering with light and glitter, people rushing inside where it would be nice and warm with their purses gaping and then coming out and quickly closing the purses again so that the loose change wouldn't catch cold. Barney swore. It began to look as if he was going to spend Christmas with 57 cents and no gold seal, no cork. No different from 364 other days. He stepped into the doorway of the store. Out of the way of the wind, he thrust his hands deep into his pockets and glared at his reflection in the store window. A fat man with a busy face came lumbering out of the store. He stared up the street, down the street, and then he stared at Barney. His eyes narrowed like he was doing sums on his fingers, and he shook his head and sighed. You want a job for a couple of hours? said the man. Barney looked back over his shoulder, figuring the man was talking to someone behind him, but there was no one there. He wasn't used to being offered jobs, and a wary look came into his eyes, because you never know what about offers. How much? said Barney. Dollar fifty an hour. Two hours? At a dollar fifty was three bucks, and he only needed two dollars and ninety-two cents. Profit eight cents. He was rich. Okay, said Barney. Oh, thank goodness, said the man, with real sincerity, and added, well, you're skinny, but, but we can stuff you. Eh? said Barney, recoiling. Come on, come on. The man took his elbow and piloted him into the store and down the crowded aisles. What are you hiring me for? Barney asked plaintively. What do you want to stuff me for? Santa Claus, of course.
Santa's tiny little king, ruler of everything, the beggars dance, children sing, welcome to your world. A barn with an animal parade, do you remember all these animals you made? talking underneath the roof the donkey's got trouble with one hoof Jesus tiny little king ruler of everything the beggars dance children sing welcome to your world of all the shepherds I feel the most for Seth he's smiling but his mother's close to death She's coughing blood, and what's more, her temperature is stuck at 104. Jesus, tiny little king, ruler of everything, the beggars dance, children sing, welcome to your world. The inn next door is getting kind of loud. But so far it sounds like the happy kind of crowd Someone sticks his head in the barn then walks away He didn't notice you there in the hay Jesus, tiny little king, ruler of everything The beggars dance, children sing, welcome to your world Jesus, tiny little king, ruler of everything The beggars dance, children sing Welcome to your world, Jesus, tiny little king, ruler of everything, the beggars dance, children sing, welcome to your world. Now, when I was a kid, this time of the year was all about anticipation particularly looking forward to two weeks off from school and what toys I would open on Christmas morning. How I longed for decorating the tree, sipping eggnog around a crackling fire and watching It's a Wonderful Life when everything seemed right in the world, or at least in my family, when our dysfunction seemed to fade into the wallpaper. There was the fun of acting out the birth of Jesus in the church pageant, or tales of Santa in school concerts, the goodness of delivering a food hamper to, to folks going through hard times, or receiving that kind of a gift when our family needed it. Counting down the days to singing carols at midnight on Christmas Eve, in my pajamas, standing in a circle with my church family, twinkling candles in hand seeing if I could drip wax on my palm without the adults noticing. It was magic. I didn't give much thought to Advent. Those were the four weeks when I couldn't wait for Christmas. As a grown-up, it's different. I do remember and celebrate that old story of what happened in Bethlehem. And I'm trying to make magic memories with our kids. But the longings are maybe for things a little different for things to be made right in the world, for wholeness within, and for good relationships with one another, for respect and love between all peoples. Maybe that sounds like pie in the sky. For me, I am easily overwhelmed by what is broken in the world, 
There is so much to notice inside me, in each of us, in our relationships, between people and nations, with this creation, this earth, everywhere, but also here in Canada. If I focus on that brokenness, though, I easily miss the gifts around. And yet this Advent season calls us to long for more, to long for better. I got to help put every brilliant thing on stage again last summer in the aftermath of the pandemic, and that was such a gift. That remarkable comedy about depression and emotional well-being, I don't know if you've seen it, hopefully going to have it up here again. There's a line in it by Duncan McMillan when the, the storyteller says, when I was younger, I was much better at being happy, at feeling joy, but being a grown-up, being conscious of the problems in the world, the tragedies, the disappointments. I'm not sure I can ever allow myself to feel joyful. I'm just not very good at it. It's helpful to know there are other people who feel the same. And yet that character's lifelong project of writing down every brilliant thing in the world, that list of gratitude changed the way she saw the world. In 2020, December of the lockdown, I was reading some Advent readings from New Leaf Network. If you don't know them, look up New Leaf Network. And I learned of a book called Factfulness. Another book if you want to look something up to read. That book calls me to let the actual data about global progress towards, say, the UN Sustainable Development Goals to let that data work as an antidote to the anxiety and the fear that is stirred up by my own survival instincts, also by the news media that gets, the media that gets the most attention these days. And maybe there's also a call to like look at the facts in my own life rather than only the brokenness. Over the last year, I've been able to work on this project called We Treaty People. And that has changed the way I see the world. A series of nine audio dramas and, and interviews with the artists that we created with a group of 49 different artists, we explored the question, what does it mean to embrace all our relations? And I'm more upset than I used to be, knowing more and more clearly understanding the challenges that we face here in these lands called Canada, the challenges towards telling the truth and working together toward reconciliation. But I've also learned that I'm less alone than I thought in my longing for things made right. And I have a lot more friends on that journey than I did two years ago. One of the characters in Krista Marushi's new play, Evergreen, asks a lonely man who's resigned and expecting nothing more from his life, do you even want to believe that life can grow and change? Or is your faith only in yourself? This season, may you savor the good that is already around you. And may we all lean into our longings together. Frosty wind made 
like a stone Snow it fall in snow on snow Snow on snow on snow In the bleak midwinter Being a PK, a preacher's kid, 
Advent and Christmas time can mean a lot of stress. For the church, it's one of the busiest and most beloved times of the year, and the focus on family brings out an all-hands-on-deck ethos for talent and efforts. Being a preacher's kid with a few undiagnosed neurological differences who love performing and grew up joining various musical groups, that pressure built up even higher. As an adult, the extra crush that we all know that can come with working retail and service or end of term can only add to that and make it extra hard to function. Even since I began the process of figuring things out 11 years ago, I haven't worked out all the kinks. The struggle to be on time, to be memorized, to have everything ready, have gifts bought wrapped and decorated, to not spend Christmas Eve rushing to get everything done with enough time to spend the evening with family, to not hide my problems and then spend all night rapping and leave myself groggy and foggy and emotionally rocky on Christmas Day. The struggle to not have days and nights filled with anxiety and depression and hopelessness, to put myself back together and repair relationships after disappointments or hurts my actions or inactions uh, might have brought into the season. It's probably a wonder I still have positive feelings about the holidays. There are other thorny issues that I get stuck on too. How do I find the perfect gift that says, thank you for putting up with me? It's so easy to overspend, not just because of the warped thalamus or dearth of happy chemicals in my brain that team up and make it hard to rein in the must-shop feelings, but also because it feels so hard to repay my loved ones. How do I find gifts that say, thank you for supporting me, for helping me get to work on time, for driving me when you can and lending me vehicles when you can't because I have too much student and personal debt to afford a new car and I don't have enough spoons anymore to work three or five jobs, for driving me when you can and chatting with me in the morning so that I can start the day feeling good for helping me eat because food preparation had too many steps and decisions and recall for my hunger foggy brain, for trying to buy and prepare foods I like, despite how complicated and uncertain a feat that is thanks to my aversions, allergies, digestive system, and changing efforts to balance them, for changing your soaps, detergents, shampoos, conditioners, deodorants, cat litter, hair gels, garbage bags, and more once I couldn't handle anything scented, for the chicken soup and crackers when I was sick, for the quiet and munches when I was studying, for all the time waiting for me on stairs and in cars and on couches, for being there with hugs and hangouts and Kleenex when I failed or was lonely, for the special suppers to celebrate my existence or achievements, for tears and smiles and photos when I finally convocated, for the tight hugs and faces beaming with pride every time I met you after coming off stage. How do I find gifts for that? Singing in front of a congregation or reading a script in development or coming out of costume after being on stage, the love and pride is so fierce and developing. How do I fit all of this gratitude into a Christmas card? So often attempts to squash down fear and overwhelm and physical discomfort or pain takes the form, for me, of trying to escape into some version of story or playing a mindless game, binging until I'm soothed. Now that I know some things, I'm working on it, trying to find strategies, but it's tricky. 
Because the season can be so overwhelming, the compulsion to flee reality is really hard to ignore. And when they need me most, my loved ones get less of me than they probably need, which tosses on the guilt and the spiral worsens, and then I'm left scrambling to finish, scrambling to translate all these big feelings and thoughts into things and words. Sometimes, if I'm lucky or self-aware enough, I remember to translate them into time, time spent together. And honestly, that's what I remember most when I think about Christmas. The times we were firmly sent to bed by my exhausted mother because my brother, Nana, and I couldn't stop making each other giggle late into the night. Time spent cuddling with my family and pets in the light of the Christmas tree as we snacked and watched holiday classics, or the antics of our cats as the lure of ornaments or toys brought back their kittenish play. Hours spent watching sappy Christmas movies with my mom as we recover from the doings of the day, snickering and laughing with my brother, watching cheesy shows or listening to mashups, sending each other memes and catching up on what we put off watching until finals are over. Dad being Capra happy at events and on Christmas morning, trying to capture all the joy, fellowship, surprise, and gestures of love. Gathering with friends full of stories and jokes, the warm and yellow and chatter glowing out the windows into the dark. All the time spent around the table, taking in the feast my mom worked so hard to put together. Introducing my partner during last year's dinner and being so happy at everyone getting along well and seeing the pleasure it brought my mom. Not only had I found someone, but I'd found someone who turned out to love her stuffing recipe. There's also the image of me singing Oh Holy Night as my Nana cried in the audience that last time. From my early years up until she couldn't bake anymore, her yearly tradition of making the most blissful, dark, and minty Nanaima bars and the sweetest cherry balls are recollections I can almost smell and taste. The same thing goes for the memories of my mom's nacho dip on Doritos after coming home on Christmas Eve. After Christmas Eve service, mom would be so busy all day and still somehow pull off an evening buffet for us to unwind with. There were also years of church potluck feasts. Sometimes a gift-sharing game we called Indian Bingo was included. And along with the stuffed belly after a long day was laughter, stories, and hugs, and praise from the elders that helped me feel like I belonged and had a little bit of purpose. Before my eldest sister moved her family back to Manitoba, the food was preceded and followed by spinning my nephews around and round and round to keep them busy, trying not to wrinkle their cute little dress shirts or make them sick and all of us kids laughing at their clumsy attempts to walk after. Years later, after my dad's church moved to the mission spaces on 20th, the potlucks involved feeling humble and awkward. I didn't know many of the people anymore, and how blessed and privileged I was was so illuminated. Social anxiety bonded with sensory overload in a major way, yet somehow there was kindness and welcome and good humor going around the tables as we ate. People had so little, and still they gave gifts of inclusion and community and made me feel welcome. People gave their time. 
That's often the gift I need in one way or another, and that I am trying a bit harder to give. Even as I paused while writing these words, upstairs there was a Christmas tree with lights on, another Christmas movie recording, and some time with my mom calling to me. Thank you for your time tonight. I hope you all find a little light and a lot of love and laughter in the times ahead of you.
Vexation of Barney Hatch, part two. Okay, what are you hiring me for? Barney asked plaintively. What do you want to stuff me for? Well, Santa Claus, of course. The man's voice implied that any fool should know that. Ours has gone home sick. We called the agency, but they can't get the substitute here until 1.30. Line of kids a mile long, yapping and yelping. Mother's getting mad, so they yank them out of the line and go somewhere else. If they go somewhere else, we go broke. How are we going to pay our taxes? He glared at Barney. Barney was not tax conscious. He was, however, conscious that he had no wish to play Santa Claus for a mob of children. His instinct warned him to escape while escape was still possible, he was about to take its advice when, in a rather peremptory manner, the vision of the gold seal bottle appeared in the air above him. Barney relaxed. His escort pushed him through a doorway into what appeared to be a dressing room. A scarlet suit, furred and benevolent, hung from a hook. I'll help you get dressed. On account of the pillow. Barney took off his coat and thought hard about the money he was making. Even with two pillows under his belt, there was something faintly melancholy about his shape. He tested the pillows against slippage. Uh, what do I have to do when I get out there? He said nervously. You sit in a chair by the Christmas tree, said the man, frowning at Barney's front, and you talk to the kids and you give them each a lollipop. What do I say? I'll promise them anything they want, uh, especially if it's in the store. I don't know what's in the store. I'll promise them anything. And this pie-in-the-sky approach seemed slightly sinister. Uh, when do I get my money? Oh, that. The man scribbled something on a piece of paper. Give this to the cashier when you leave. You come back here and give the man your suit, and I hope to God he's got more shape than you have, and then you can get your money and be on your way. Well, patting his front with a certain anxiety, Barney let himself be shepherded back through the store to where a glittering Christmas tree touched the ceiling and a small jungle of assorted children milled about, shouting their boredom and their lack of faith. Barney had an impulse to run, but his guide, perhaps sensing it, shoved them briskly into the throne-like chair and anchored him by putting a small child on his knee. The infant was fat, fair, and female, and Santa Claus regarded her with a marked distaste. He then thought of the three dollars and pulled himself together enough to inquire what the little lady wanted for Christmas. The little lady sounded off like a clockwork mouse, her list of vital necessities having apparently been ready for days and her memory excellent. When he took her off his knee and forgot to give her a lollipop, she demanded that that too, and Barney had to admire the tough grip she had on the situation. In about ten minutes, he was pretty well into the swing of things, the Santa Claus racket being somewhat easier than expected. If a toddler wanted a grizzly bear in his Christmas stocking, all Santa had to do was pat his head and promise a den of bears and hand him back to his mama. This grandiloquent largesse with no responsibility speeded the passage of the two hours. And Barney had just promised a little girl with pigtails that she would have curly hair for Christmas when the small boy showed up. He was a very small boy, even smaller than the other children, 
and he looked out a place in the line among the well-brushed, neatly-dressed household creatures who were patrolled by parents. His hair, if it had been combed at all, had been combed by his fingers. His pants were too short and his coat sleeves were too long. His face was dirty, and he stood with his hands thrust in his pockets and his chin sticking out. Barney recognized him. He was a street sparrow. And wherever else he might belong, he didn't belong in the warm, rich aisles of a big department store. The boy stood and stared at him, and Barney stared back. There was something about this kid's stare that was different from the others, and it took a moment for Barney to place it. Then he realized that the boy was looking at him as if he were real. The other children had looked at him as if he were a handy device for registering propositions. He felt a vague embarrassment, very foreign to him. He rubbed his nose with the back of his hand, causing his whiskers to lurch sideways. Uh, well, my little man, he said, uh, because that was more or less what he'd been saying for about almost two hours. Uh, what do you want for Christmas? What I didn't get last year, said the boy. He looked at Santa Claus long and hard. What you promised me last year and I didn't get. Barney pulled his beard back into position and tried to think of some way of counteracting this very unfavorable propaganda. Several children in the line were giving him rather cool up and down looks and Barney wished no complaints made to the management before he pocketed his money. He said with false cheer, Well, well, we'll do better this year, won't we? Just what was it you wanted? You know, said the small boy quietly. The harmonica. It was a long word, but he didn't miss a syllable. It took Barney a moment to identify harmonica as the small musical instrument which was played like a corn on a cob. Oh, must have slipped to the bottom of my back, he said cleverly. Imagine that happening. He gave a conciliatory, unsuccessful chuckle. <laughs> the boy regarded him calmly, but with unnerving watchfulness. Well, you'll get it this year for sure, said Barney defensively. You said that last year. I told you, it slipped down to the bottom of my pack. Here, he handed over a green lollipop. Take this and go away and be a good boy. If you aren't a good boy, you won't get anything for Christmas at all. Even as he said this, it struck him as a revolting philosophy. But it was backed by tradition. He said, hopefully, two lollipops? The boy shook his head and backed off. No, I don't want them. I want the harmonica. The line behind him was growing restive, and there was a faint murmuring of parents. Go, go away, said Barney. Okay, I'll see you later. Not if I see you first, thought Barney, and turned with considerable relief to his next customer. The clock told him he had ten minutes to go, and then the world in a gold seal bottle would be his. When the clock hand moved into place, Santa Claus's eagerness to quit his duties was such that he nearly dumped the last child on the floor. In the dressing room, his replacement was waiting calmly, a cozy gentleman with a twinkle in his eye and a curve like a robin's under his waistcoat. The beard and his red suit merely confirmed that here was Santa Claus. Barney frankly admired him and hoped the small harmonica-seeking boy would turn up in the line again, pitted against the Santa who would know how to deal with him. Whistling, he sought out the cashier's desk, and in a few minutes he had exchanged his white slip of paper for three pretty green ones, underwritten by the Treasury of the United States. And now he had three dollars and fifty-seven cents. He would walk slowly to the liquor store. He would stroll, savoring every moment. <sighs> the very magnificence of the gesture would lay out a red carpet for Christmas. It would be glorious. My son's trumpet valve was broken. It 
wouldn't get unstuck I tried my hand fixing it but I wasn't having any luck so I left it with the repairman and I waited for his call spring changed in summer and summer into fall nine months passed enough time to squeeze a baby out I dialed up the repairman to see what was the hold up about I left messages that weren't returned three more months went by my call went through and I was talking to the guy He was waiting on parts from the supplier There was nothing that he could do It's true, I'd waited one whole year But some were waiting more than two So that was that Still more waiting to do And Jesus, I have to say That the whole thing made me think of you been so long since I've heard the trumpet sound. In my life and the whole wide world around. The angels when you were born, the trumpets, something new across the land. Trumpet valves are old and stuck And the fix is far out of our hands How can we play a new song? We need to hear a new song We've been waiting so That's just a beautiful singing and, and um, story sharing. Thank you, Stefan, for those beautiful words that you said earlier. So I just said thank you for helping uh, Bird Thicket Theater fundraise and for the, your support. I'm, I'm very grateful for that. Over the years, I've watched many of my elders who've gone, who've who've gone to the other side now, and watched their generosity before Christmas, because in my community we're always giving, and um, so it's something that I uh, I strive to do for myself is to give to somebody as simple as the gas attendant who's pumping my gas. I give him five bucks. And, uh, you know, we do it for restaurant servers. That's a given almost. But we don't do it for those people who clean up after us, the janitors, um, the people who serve us cocktails. I don't eat that stuff, but you know what I mean. The people who give up their seat on a bus or in a church or wherever in a hall for the elderly, for the handicapped. 
And people who take the time to dialogue with us, even though they don't know us, I really encourage that type of dialogue to find out the personhood behind that white face or that brown face or that yellow face or that black face, to find out what they're all about. And um, sending thank you notes, written thank you notes are greatly appreciated. It's a lost art writing letters. And um, grocery stores, you know, the cashier who's looking after your stuff, it doesn't take a whole lot of effort to say, thank you, I hope you are having a good day. Or if they're bitchy towards you, you say, gee, you know, I understand where you're coming from. I'm having one of those days, do too. Your doctor, your nurse, your teacher, you know, all of these little children, they're the greatest elders, teachers, they're the greatest elders teach uh, these children. I've learned a lot from my six-year-old grandson. He one day told me, Gukum, you have an anger issue. <laughs> and I said, you're quite right, my mushrooms. So, I mean, he's a great teacher. I had to take a look at myself. So attitude change is so important. To be courteous is so important. So the, these are things I strive for. And um, I'm standing here tonight thinking about some of the pain my community has gone through this last year and some of the pain my family is feeling right now for their losses and some of the pain that my friends are having as they face court issues. And I, and I invite you to think about all of those people, to send prayers of compassion and hope and faith. And I want to dedicate this to my elders because they're the ones who have shown me you give $5 to your gas attendant, he'll really appreciate it. You know, I had never even thought of that. A gas attendant, pumping my gas and wiping the windshield. I'll give him a little extra if he washes my windshield. But um, So it's um, kindness for me is an everyday act, and sometimes I'm a failure at it. But uh, I'm only human, and, and it's something that we ought to do. So I, I call this kindness marks the advent. Because Christmas was something I didn't grow up with um, that I've had to learn over the years. And it has different meanings for different folks. And mine is not a Christian meaning. Mine is about giving every day. In waist-deep snow, my father trucked a rifle slung over his shoulder, a gunshot carried through the forest. Wind echoed its reply. The prairie chickens cradled in a gunny sack. Greeting each new day and at sunset, sweet grass joined the warmth of the wood stove. That night, the sweet birds would fill the stomachs. Christmas was a new visitor. My father hitched the horses, filled the wagon with hay, blankets, and heated rocks. We were going to midnight mass. Some of the birds were bound for Nukum and Musroom. At the church basement, families gathered. We each received a candy and an orange. Back at the cabin, mother baked cinnamon rolls, made raisin and rice pudding. She sliced elk meat, paper thin, fried in goose fat. The nude prairie birds ready to roast. 
In today's household, sweet grass blesses the tree. A beaded white buffalo is perched atop. Cranberries, popcorn strung branch to branch. A water pail, a basket of small rocks, a buffalo's horn are placed at the trunk. A seventh generation cradle board is hung nearby. A feast plate is offered for the departed loved ones. A delivery of groceries, mitts, and winter jackets for the forgotten, the homeless, the elderly, the lost children. At city corners, $20 for the hungry, tips for gas attendants and garbage collectors, mail deliverers, the seamstress, the student. It's not just today, but throughout the year, kindness is the advent. This second poem I wrote for... um, Municipalities are across the country. It's called the landscape of the heart. Sometimes the heart's dam wants to spill the overflow and flood its constriction. This is when one needs to walk the Miwasan Trail, the Wascana Park, somewhere to listen to magpies, sparrows, geese, and doves to watch the wind excite the trees while the orange splash of Oreos display their brilliance, to watch the swell of deep clouds move gently across the heavens to smell the earth's fresh rain. We need the solitude of the parks to be at peace, to watch strangers walk hand in hand, catch snippets of their stories, laughter or tears to picnic with our families, maybe throw sunflower seeds or bannock to strutting pigeons. I think of the crowded masses walking the concrete highway where dandelions poke alone through the cracks, where caged birds may be surrounded by hungry souls wanting a bit of wild. And still, I am privileged to inhale the cherry blossoms, mock orange, purple lilacs, the spruce and pine, these ancient spirits breathing for all the earth. I want this for the frozen eyelids, the bruised hearts, the deaf ears. I want dirty fingernails rimmed with soil connected to the heart and soul to remember we all once collected pebbles, these small hard concretions that attach themselves to our hearts. Sometimes we find this place in a simple walk through the park. All my relations, thank you.
hardest part has barely just begun It's to find a melody It's just an exercise in tonal modality But now the task at hand Is to find a way to say what must be said In a way that will land Staring at the empty page You realize there's nothing new These days Yes, now it's time for words Time to say something that no one's ever heard Time to find a metaphor Says they already have just what they're looking for Maybe I can find a quotation from a thinker who deals in the sublime. Perhaps a clever paraphrase of what has already been said a million different ways. Christmas prose that makes a point about inclusion, citing Rudolph's shiny nose. When it all seems cringy, old, and wrong, does the world really need another Christmas song? Because we're here, still looking for the answers. We're here, has it already been a year? We're here, making course corrections. We're here, pushing down the fear. We're here, but the ones we love are dying. We're here, and our kids have lost their way. The cost of living's climbing. We're here, and there are all those bills to pay. We're here, let's write this one together. We're here, all searching for the rhyme. We're here, a little comfort in the moment, and a reminder that we're all on borrowed time but a fancy advent word for me is just a pair of Christmas socks for it seems to me the mystery will never fit into this box.
The Vexation of Barney Hatch, part three. Floating on a cloud of anticipation, Barney Hatch walked out of the department store and into the street. There you are, said the small boy, rising at his elbow. Barney leapt and came down quivering. The boy took hold of Barney's coat and gave it a good sharp tug, endangering a vital button. Come on. Scram, said Barney. You got me mixed up with someone else. No, I ain't. Barney stopped in his tracks and stared down at the top of the head that needed a haircut. Who do you think I am? Santa Claus, said the boy. He knew he shouldn't have asked. He couldn't even figure out how the kid had been able to spot him without his beard and his furred suit. He said, look kid, <laughs> I saw your friend Santa Claus just a minute ago. He's in the store. You can go back in the store and you'll find him there under the tree. That ain't Santa Claus, said the boy. It is so, said Barney indignantly. It ain't. All right, it ain't, thought Barney. But Santa Claus is up at the North Pole. You don't get into town nowadays. Yes, you do. Listen, said Barney. You're making me very nervous. Go away or I'll call a cop. He looked up the street in a threatening manner, and his eyes lit on the happy sight of a fine specimen of a Santa Claus halfway up the block, standing by a phony chimney and ringing a bell. Barney put a hand on the boy's shoulder and gave him a fervent push. There's your Santa Claus up there. See, I told you, you got the wrong guy. That ain't Santa Claus. Jeez, said Barney with some passion. Can't you get a new record? What makes you think the guy up there ain't Santa Claus? Because you are, answered the boy. Barney shook his head hard, feeling life getting complicated. Then he had a bright idea. He surrendered suddenly. Okay, he said, so I'm Santa Claus. How'd you guess? The boy shrugged. I don't know. I just did. Well, it was real smart of you. I'm sort of anonymous, you know. That means nobody knows I'm in town. He put a hand on the boy's shoulder and the boy squirmed away. Now look, son, that, that guy in the store, the one that's wearing my costume, well, he's one of my special assistants. Yeah? Yeah. Well, he, he handles the musical instrument side of the business, see? So you go back in the store and you tell him I sent you and everything will be okay, oh, see? No. What do you mean, no? The boy said stolidly. You promised me my harmonica last Christmas and I didn't get it. I've waited a whole year. He looked up suddenly. I've got to get it this year. I've wasted a whole year and I could have been playing. You promised me. Barney's voice rose. I wasn't even around last year. The boy just looked at him. In the patient way, children look at grown-ups who make silly remarks. Barney began to feel haunted. A man might as well try to get a wad of chewing gum out of his hair as this little squirt. For a moment, he toyed with the idea of turning tail and running. But there is nothing that attracts a policeman like a running object. The situation required something more subtle. Barney heaved a sigh. <sighs> okay, how about your ma and pa buying a harmonica for you, he said hopefully. The boy's eyes slid sideways, and for just a second Barney was sorry he'd asked. There being so many homes in the world where stockings never hang at Christmas time. I didn't bring no harmonica with me this trip, he said crushingly. You're out of luck this year. You can buy it. The mere suggestion of parting from any cash caused a cry of anguish to rise to Barney's lips. He said in one outraged defiant breath, See here, you, you're too old to believe in Santa Claus, and furthermore, there ain't no Santa Claus. And then he waited stoically for the expected broken heart. It failed to materialize.
The boy nodded calmly. He said, Like you told me, you have to be a Nani Mouse. He called it a Nani Mouse, like something a cat would be watching for. Barney sighed heavily and stroked the end of his nose. He was not an expert on harmonicas, but he was pretty sure you could buy one at a dime store toy counter. Take away one dime from his cash in hand, it would leave him with 347, only two cents short of his ticket to Christmas Day. And if he couldn't make a two cent touch in the next couple of hours, he deserved to be read out of the panhandlers club anyway. He sighed again. All right, he said glumly. Where's the nearest dime store? The boy started to say something, and then changed his mind. He took Barney's hand, not in the least trustingly, but plainly to prevent his escape. And they walked down two blocks, and one over, turned sharply into a grubby side street, and stopped in front of a store. Hey, said Barney. This was no dime store. This was a kind of store Barney knew inside and out. A pawn shop, and not a classy one. Its fly-speck, dusty windows were piled high with objects as miscellaneous as a junkman's dream. Old tired medals on faded bits of ribbon, an alarm clock with no hands, a china lamp with a cupid base, and dirty blue ruffles, a handful of painted brooches, a snuff box with no lid, a silver mug inscribed 1887 to 1907, a stuffed and lopsided owl. There, said the small boy. There by the owl. Barney looked. A beat-up, tarnished harmonica lay in a satin-lined box. The lining had been red, once, but the sun through the window had faded it to a pink like a raspberry stain, and there was a big dent in the side of the harmonica. It looked like a long time since anyone had played it, or wanted to. A connoisseur of old age and unwanted objects, Barney figured a quick guess that the harmonica had been laying there five years? was a weather-beaten shipwreck washed up on a pawn shop beach. Junk, like really junk. Barney looked down at the head just under his elbow. Is that what you've been yammering about? The head nodded. Snow was pressed against the windowpane. I told you about it last Christmas. That was when you promised. Barney bit the tail off an expletive, calling down a justified imprecation on some previous hired Santa Claus who must have been throwing out promises like confetti. He stared at the harmonic and worried the tip of his nose. It's hard to know with pawnbrokers. This one might charge as much as a quarter. Hmm. Been there a long time, he said. Wouldn't you rather have a nice clean harmonica from the dime store? The small boy said scornfully, they're just toys. This is a real one. <laughs> real like his Santa Claus was real. Two pieces of junk. This is awfully old, been there years. Don't hurt it, said the boy. Not if it's a good one. He moved back from the window a little unconsciously cupping his hands as though the instrument already laid in their grubby palms. The most a pawnbroker would possibly charge for the piece of junk was 50 cents. Now, 50 cents was an awful thought. 50 cents was outrageous for a skinny piece of music-making tin. But on the other hand, the essence of a pawn shop was bargaining, and no one knew this better than Barney Hatch, who in his day could have bargained a sparrow out of its beat in the gutter. Starting at 50 cents, he would begin to work downward. You know, the dent in the harmonica, the dust, the years had been there with no one wanting it, the tarnish, even the pathetic satin lining of the box. Mentally, Barney talked the price down to 35 cents. Now, 35 cents was still too much. At 35 cent level, he would begin to apply sentiment. Well, it's Christmas, ain't it? 
as a little boy who believes in Santa Claus. And here's a moldy old harmonica, no good to anyone taking up space. No class to a piece of junk like that. Make it 20 cents. We'll take it off your hands. 20 cents. Huh. That was the sky. All right, said Barney dismally. Push the boy through the door. This Christmas is our first kiss. She said it's a silent night. A holy night. She said all is calm, all is bright. But kissing you right now, well, would be right. Lord have mercy, go. Taking a break from shoveling my snow. He said, I'm fine with blue bells for Christmas. Cause to a good boy, well, no means no. It's a silent night. Holy night. All is gone. a piece called Unease by Scott Erickson from his book Honest Advent. It begins with this quote from the Gospel of Luke, let it be to me according to your word. 
There was a moment when the presence of God was felt as the unease of morning sickness. Don't be surprised if your current unease is that exact same avenue of presence. Nothing can ruin the euphoria of discovering you're pregnant faster than the need to vomit. Although not confined to the beginning of the day, morning sickness is the term we use to describe the nausea and vomiting that affects four out of five mothers during the first trimester of pregnancy, or some for all three, like my wife. Whether it stems from an increase in hormonal activity or a reduction in the blood sugar, physicians and scientists are not completely clear on why this happens. The main hypothesis is that it's the body's learned biological strategy to protect the growing child from any unhealthy food and drink the mother may typically consume if she did not feel like blowing chunks publicly. My wife describes it like a hangover without having enjoyed the party, or the queasy stomach without the screaming adrenaline from the loop-de-loop roller coaster ride. It's a discomfort that women know is leading them to a new life, and it's bearable because of that deep hope of joy. It's not written in the gospel texts, but it's plausible to suggest there was a period in Mary's journey when she too went through this same uneasy trimester. I can imagine the moment it hit ending the spiritual high of angelic announcement and welcoming her into the uneasy, queasy feeling of actually having to go through the physical details of this divine calling. That's the rub of all divine proclamations, isn't it? The announcement that you are going to grow. The process of growth is always uneasy because growth never comes through ease. It comes through the stretching and expanding of one's capacity to push on ahead. And often the change that needs to happen in order for you to grow may leave you dry heaving on the sidelines. Like when you run around until you feel like throwing up as you prepare for the day of the marathon, or the anxiety, nausea of packing up all your worldly possessions and moving to a part of the world that is unknown to you, or the gagging nerves of trying to date again, or the vomitous risk of starting a new career. I have spent years of growing into a public speaker, and I can't tell you how many speeches I've given that were preceded by a little throwing up in my mouth before I went on stage. The uneasiness is not a sign that you're doing it wrong. In fact, just as with pregnancy, it's a sign you're on the right track. The difficulty in letting God grow you is the trust that is asked of you when you aren't quite clear what the outcome looks like. When you intentionally do more sit-ups or eat less meat lover's pizza, you may have an image in your mind of what it might look like to feel more comfortable for swimsuit season. But when you say to the giver of your life, I want my life to be meaningful. I want to serve you with my life. May it be so according to what you desire. You have no idea what secret cosmic strategies have been put into play to answer that request. You may very well find yourself in an uneasy situation, just like everyone else in the Bible. Look at the chorus of human beings in this Christmas story, and you will see the same song being sung by all of them to trust in the goodness of God in uneasy situations, just as we are invited to sing. The only difference is that we see the whole story played out in the pages of Scripture, whereas we are right in the middle of our own stories being sung and have no idea if this is a catchy tune or a musical disaster. Because of this, when we find ourselves in an uneasy place in life, our question to God is, why are you doing this to me? Partly this is to check to see if God has perhaps gotten distracted with more pressing global concerns and has left us to fend for ourselves, 
And partly it's to express the disappointing conclusion that our request that God do what it desires in our lives has not brought about the journey of ease we had hoped for. If you ask a newly pregnant mother, hugging the toilet while racked with morning sickness, why it's worth going through all this hardship, she will wipe away the remnants of last night's dinner with a piece of toilet paper and whisper, for love, it's worth it because I love this child. The answer to our question to God is surprisingly the same. Just like morning sickness, the unease is a strategy of the soul to protect you from doing all the things as usual that could harm this new life being grown in you. It's for love that you have been moved from what is known to what is unknown. It's for love you have been moved from your comfortable perch so that you may be enlarged by a different perspective. It is for love that you have been broken open so a larger capacity for faith, hope, and love can be built inside you for love. It's because you are loved. It may be that the divine presence you've been looking for is to be found in your present unease. Don't miss this invitation by trying to find a resolution to your unease prematurely. May the unease of your stretching and expanding be the promise of divine love, growing in you a new life of unforeseen possibility. Day of peace that dimly shines through all our hopes and prayers and dreams. Guide us to justice, truth, and love. Delivered from our selfish schemes. Make swords of hate fall from our hands Our hearts from envy find release Till by God's grace our war and world Shall see Christ from his Oh
for you, I've adapted Carol Penner's Longest Night Prayer. There are good years and bad years, and then there are years from hell. Hear our prayer, Creator, for all who are tortured by conflict. You hear the anguished cries, see the hearts that have turned to stone. There are people who will die without intervention. We need a savior for those who sit in the shadow of death, for children who have lost their parents and have no one to take care of them, for teenagers forced to fight and who can't imagine a normal life, for all who have killed and have witnessed the killing, for all who are fleeing the violence and looking for a place of refuge, for parents who have no choices and see their children starve, for seniors who cannot believe the losses they have seen, Gitchi Manitou, you know the particular pain of each one, the stories of death and assault, the stories of home and homelands destroyed. You gather our stories in your arms, and in this longest night, you hold them and us. Hope shines like an infinitely distant star, like a star over Bethlehem shining over towering concrete walls and machine gun battlements. We need angels with good news of peace on earth, lighting the sky of our lives, offering relief. On this longest night, in the mystery of your love, steal into our world again. Be born again in hearts that work for peace. Illuminate pathways through the chaos that is war. Bring tender mercy and let dawn break upon us. Bring and strengthen trust that you will guide our feet into the way of kinship. This is our prayer. May it be so. Miigwech, all my relations. Come on. 
monster won't break you It's already gone too far Who said that if you're going hard You won't get hurt Oh Jesus, can you take the time To throw a drowning man a line piece on earth Well tell the ones who hear no sound Whose sons are living in the ground Peace on earth are wise and no one cries like a mother cries for peace on earth she never got to say goodbye to see the color of his eyes now he's in the dirt for peace on earth get to know but here's to those who didn't make it into Wikipedia their lives are bigger than any big idea Jesus can you take the time to throw a drowning man in line peace on earth we'll tell the ones who hear no sound whose sons are living in the ground on earth well Jesus in the song you wrote the words are sticking in my throat peace on earth I hear it every Christmas time but hope and history don't rhyme so what's it worth this peace on earth Vexation of Barney Hatch, part four, the end. The shop was full of shadows. The fattest shadow detached itself and came forward. Want something? Oh, it's you. Me, said Barney. Nah, the kid. The man had a flat face like a moon. Comes here all the time. 
nose sticking right through the plate glass. He looked at the small boy, from whom suddenly a quiver of electric current seemed to be flowing. Listen, said the pawnbroker, outraged by so much intensity. I'm not going to haul the thing out of the window for you again. I told you last time. And the boy said, he's going to buy it for me. He said it quite quietly. The pawnbroker looked at Barney sharply. That right? You going to buy it? Uh, Got to look it over first, said Barney. He reached into his pocket, past the cool crackle of his beloved dollar bills, found a quarter, which he rubbed tenderly between his fingers. The pawnbroker waddled toward the window, talking to himself. Oh, it gives me the creeps the kid does, staring in the window all the time. Comes in and says, can I see it again? I got nothing to do but run about hauling the thing out of the window. Been there so long. Oh, fits so nice. Spoils the window, said Barney, sensing conflict. Props up the owl, says the problem broker, removing the harmonica and causing the owl to fall into the china cupid lamp. You see, he said with a kind of melancholy pride. He blew dust off the box of the harmonica, waddling back and planked the box down. The small boy put his chin on the counter and stared so hard it looked as if his ears might fly off. Barney reminded himself that 20 cents was an outside price. The boy's dirty paw reached up and one finger touched the deep dent in the side of the instrument. Don't touch, said the pawnbroker crossly. The boy put his hands in his pockets. Because uncaged, he could not be responsible for them. Barney kept thinking about the 20 cents. The old harmonica was so busted up, it probably couldn't even carry a tune. Hmm. Piece of junk, ain't it? said Barney. Very loud and affable. Paid you to let the kid cart it away, huh? <laughs> the pawnbroker gave a sort of short, unpromising laugh. Barney shrugged. He had not expected the gambit to work. Uh, what do you want for it, he said casually. He had expected the pawnbroker to hesitate, sizing up his customer's affluence according to immemorial pawnbroker custom. The pawnbroker did not hesitate. He said crisply, three bucks. Barney gave a wild, incredulous howl, three bucks? You're out of your mind. Take it or leave it, said the man. That's the price. You're out of your mind, said Barney. There was a small bubble of sound down at counter level. The kid had reached up and taken the harmonica into his hands and was now rubbing it tenderly against his coat sleeve. The pawnbroker said, put it down, with a weary irritability. Bet it don't even blow, said Barney indignantly. Piece of junk. I'll give you two bits for the piece of junk. Oh, it blows, said the pawnbroker unmoved. Bet it don't. Blow it yourself, said the pawnbroker coldly. Barney stretched out his hand the small boy pulled away and put the harmonica to his own lips. There was a small, breathy sound, wheezy like an old organ, as the little instrument breathed out the dust of the window, breathed in something new. And then it piped, a sweet little pipe, like a bird in a meadow, following a thread of a tune, a tiny melody that went up and down, miniature but recognizable. Don't breathe so light, said the pawnbroker fretfully. Makes it sound like a sick cat. You gotta fill your lungs. It ain't used to me yet, said the small boy in the smallest of whispers. Where'd you learn to play a tune, said Barney. Fella taught me once. He volunteered no more. His eyes were enormous, his hands were cradles. He talked gently to the harmonica. The pawnbroker and Barney looked at each other. Thirty cents, said Barney. That's my last word. <laughs> Listen. 
The pawnbroker leaned across his counter, master of all his objects. You hear how good she plays. <laughs> Six years in a winnow and still as sweet as a bird. No volume, said Barney. <laughs> get the dust out of its innards and some breath into that boy. You'd get plenty of volume. Three bucks, nothing less. Who, said Barney rhetorically, do you think you're kidding? Pawnbroker broker waved a hand. A dollar a year I take off. Last Christmas, she was four bucks. This Christmas, three. Next Christmas, two. See you next Christmas, Santa Claus. The kid's head jerked up. Barney leapt like a flea. Don't call me that, he yelped. The boy looked at the pawnbroker with interest. How'd you know who he was? Who? Him. Santa Claus. Listen, said Barney hysterically. He's a naughty mouse, said the boy pleasantly. He lifted the harmonica to his lips again, and this time the tune didn't sound so thin anymore, but almost like a real piece of music. Over his cupped hands, his eyes were as bright as a squirrel's. Three bucks, said the pawnbroker. Talk sense, said Barney. The pawnbroker shrugged and turned to the kid. Gent ain't gonna invest, he said indifferently. Give her here, I'll put her back in the window. The kid backed away. The harmonica held tight. He looked up at Barney. You promised. Barney glared at him. Maybe the whole thing was a racket. Maybe the kid and the pawnbroker were in cahoots. Only a sucker would be expected to pay $3 for a piece of junk. Even if the piece of junk did have a tune inside it. Barney Hatch was smart. And Barney Hatch was getting out. His money tight in his pocket. His Christmas Day all spelled out for him. The glow of his own private bottle of good whiskey just around the next corner. Thirty-five cents, said Barney coldly. Not a nickel more. Three bucks. Thirty-five cents, the pawnbroker said to the boy. Put the harmonica down, kid. The jet ain't interested. Spread his hands on the counter, watching the boy. And after a minute, he said, I told you, put it down. The boy moved so slowly, he hardly moved at all. Put it down. He reached up and placed a shiny little piece of junk, value three dollars, on the counter. And then he opened his hand and let it go like it was a baby rabbit or something. Then he touched the dent in it with one finger like a smoothing a baby rabbit's ear. The pawnbroker took it up and put it back in its box and snapped the lid down hard. The kid looked at Barney. It all of a sudden became very clear to Barney that he didn't have to stand here in a, in a dirty old pawn shop with a skinny little kid staring at him. He pushed his hands down deep in his pockets and felt the lovely, crackling reassurance of his money. And that did it. He spun on his heels and left the shop. He walked down the street in such a hurry that you would have thought that there was a pack of angels snapping at his heels. And he didn't stop, and he didn't look back, and he turned a corner so fast he bumped into a fat lady with a lot of packages who gave him a huffy look like her mouth was full of pins. And he didn't pay any attention. The corner he was turning was the corner by the liquor store, and the one thing that was clear in his mind was that he was going to convert his dollars into Christmas and convert them quickly. There, in the window, was the bottle he had picked out. Gold seal, fancy label, red Christmas bow. And inside, Barney's Pat's board to Christmas. He could imagine its glow spreading and comforting, making the 25th of December something to remember. I'm just looking at it made him feel better. He reached into his pocket, taking out the bills, smoothing them, putting the change on top. $3.49, the price of a good bottle of whiskey. Only 49 cents more than a cheap, beat-up harmonica in a satin-lined box. Barney made a cross sound. Ah, he hadn't intended thinking about the kid. 
He looked at the whiskey bottle again, it not being the shape of a harmonica at all. Kid must be used to waiting by now. <laughs> he could wait another year. Would learn him not to believe in Santa Claus. Kids had no business me going around believing in Santa Claus anyway. Probably just a gag. I mean, who believed in Santa Claus? Suppose this kid did. Well, then it was high time he stopped believing. High time he grew up. Barney looked down at the dollar bills and the loose change, and he looked past them at the whiskey bottle. Kids like that one never grew up. They didn't have to. They were born old. What Barney knew about people not caring, what that whiskey bottle knew, that was what the kid knew too. Today, just in case he'd forgotten his lesson, the kid had learned it again. The whiskey bottle glittered in the window. The gold seal shone like a star. Barney swore. Barney said, the hell with it. And a passerby gave him a shocked look, which Barney didn't see. He turned on his heel and he started walking fast, walking back the way he'd come. The last couple blocks he ran because the kid might be gone. The kid wasn't gone. He was standing there outside the pawn shop window, hugged up close to the glass, waiting for next Christmas. <laughs> the hand that Barney put on his shoulder was rough. It was rough the way that Barney marched him into the store. It was rough the way he slammed down $3 on the pawnbroker's counter and the way he said, get that junky thing out of the window again. It was a roughness like shattered glass, like a broken whiskey bottle. The pawnbroker scooped up the money first, and then he went to the window and took the satin-lined box out and put it in front of Barney. Barney pushed it over with one angry hand, not looking at the kid. The kid didn't ask. He knew it was his. He put out both hands, and it almost seemed, though it wasn't possible, that the harmonica jumped up into them. He turned his back to the counter, and he pressed his shoulders against it. He held the harmonica up to his mouth, but his hands were shaking, and the silly little tinny thing wobbled and shook, too. He put his hands down level with his chest, the harmonica tight and safe in his fingers. The pawnbroker brushed some imaginary crumbs off the counter. The room was getting dark with twilight, and outside the wind was worrying the big window trying to get at the stuffed owl and the china lamp and the silver mug. Barney stood in the middle of the pawn shop and listened to the wind. If it had come into the pawn shop and laid its cold finger on his shoulder, it couldn't have told him more plainly what a fool he'd been. Money gone. Whiskey gone. Christmas gone. The Christmas that would have been a real one. The Christmas that would have kept the cold out. He hunched up his shoulders. The pawnbroker and the kid were both looking at him, and suddenly their staring made him angry. What, what, what did they have to be gaping at him for? Kid had his harmonica, pawnbroker had his money, everybody was sitting pretty except Barney Hatch. He opened his mouth to shout his anger at them, but the kid spoke first. I, I'm awful sorry, the kid said anxiously. I, I, I didn't say thank you. I, I could play a tune for you, he said hopefully. Only I don't know but the one. The pawnbroker leaned abruptly across the counter. "'Tisn't suited,' he said firmly. "'Don't you know any Christmas tunes like, uh...' He thought for a moment. "'Like, uh... Oh, "'Hark the Herald Angels Sing. "'That's a good tune.' The boy shook his head. "'I, I don't know. I, I, "'I never heard it.' <laughs> "'Imagine that,' said the pawnbroker wonderingly. "'Imagine that.' He straightened up from the counter and drew a deep breath. From inside him there came a sort of rumble. The rumble was just a little bit off-key, but the Herald Angels were clearly on their way. 
For a moment, the kid listened with his head tilted on one side. Then he cupped the harmonica and put it to his lips. First, he had a little trouble making the tune come out right. Then it began to grow until the harmonica was singing glory to the newborn king as if it had been silent for six years just for this moment. The pawnbroker beat one hand on the counter, keeping time, and the chorus of Christmas angels came up so fine and strong that the dust danced on the pawn shop shelves. Barney stared. Very slowly, all through him, there began to spread a glow, warm and golden, quite unmistakable. It was a glow he had planned to buy for $3.49. The glow he had thought came only in a bottle. He stood there, listening, and he let it warm. Outside, the wind shook hard at the window, (laughs) wanting to come in out of the cold.
you to our wonderful musicians. And, uh, and new songs, new songs that you heard, that were heard first time publicly tonight. How many new songs? Three, four? Four. Four you heard for the first time here. Yeah, yeah. yeah big round of applause for Louise Bueller and Daryl Dazlaw and Wyndham Thiessen and Shane Bueller. As well as thank you to Louise Half and yes. to Andrea Folster, to Tim Bratton. Yeah. Thanks so much for spending your evening here with us. Uh, we're very grateful. Before you go, there's a few other things we're gonna say, and we're gonna do a draw, which mm -hmm. Brooklyn is ready to, mm -hmm. to bring that up. Should I come grab that? Sure, you Brooklyn, can, you can come up. First thing we wanna say, if you haven't already listened, would you give a listen to We Treaty People? And I just invite you to, to lean in to those stories. We also want to invite you, if you haven't already made a Play It Forward donation, to donate now at burntthicket.com. And uh, we'd also invite you to lean in to generosity and to compassion and to kindness this season, every season. Yeah. But particularly this season, would you look around your neighborhood, your part of the city, where could I offer some support to someone who's going through hard times? And maybe also, would you look around the world? What's tugging your heart? Maybe there's one, 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 one place, one thing you want to you wanna invest in. But where's somewhat, something direct and personal where you can build relationship in your neighborhood? Yeah, I would just say Louise and Andrea are both friends that we met out of doing the We Treaty Project. So if you want to hear more of their lovely work, definitely listen to, mm -hmm. to We Treaty People. Mm -hmm. But now... A prize. I will, I will draw one name, and one name only. Just one name. For the cocoa frosted, no, cocoa dusted double dark chocolate truffles. Lorna Luton? Hey. Is that right? Who's the winner? Thank you again for coming, everyone. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Have a wonderful Christmas season, mm -hmm. and we hope to see you in the new year with our new projects uh, as we are able to hopefully do more and more live theater uh, into the new year. Thank yeah. you all. Have Thank a wonderful you. night. Good night.